man, there are just some songs that you sing that have so much truth to them. We just sang one of them. Not a, not a terribly old song, not a brand new song, but we just sang about the fact that we recognize the fact that every hour we need God. One of the terrible, terrible realizations that you come, come to as you journey with Christ for a long time is that you might go an hour without thinking about Him. You might go two hours without thinking about your need for God. Dare I say, you might go a whole day without the God of the universe being on your mind. And my, my prayer for our message this morning is that as church people, predominantly, who, who shows up for church on Sunday morning? God's people. We certainly have a few visitors that will be with us on any given Sunday. If God's people would be conscientious of their need for God, we wouldn't need to invite anyone to church. Our lives would radiate the glory of who God is and the joy that we can have knowing that we're forgiven, knowing that we're in a right relationship with God. And my fear is that many times Christians have lost the wonder of who God is. Why in the world would anyone want to buy what we're selling if we don't love it? And, and part of the fear for me is that we, we live in the day of the non-apology apology. You ever seen that? The non-apology apology? Whether it's uh, Lance Armstrong with his doping, Tiger Woods with his cheating, Arnold Schwarzenegger with his love child, Representative Anthony Weiner with his inappropriate pictures, or the President of the United States, Bill Clinton, with his inappropriate relationships. When our leaders get in trouble, they feel the need to go on TV or be interviewed to basically tell us how sorry they are for not really being sorry. That's not an apology. Husbands, try that on your wife. And let me know how comfortable the couch is after you try a non-apology apology. I can speak with some experience to this. Early in our marriage, I had a little maxim, a little, little truth, that if there are two ways to take something that I said, and one of them is not offensive, that's the one that I meant. And so uh, I, had, I had a great little phrase that basically was, well, I'm sorry that you took it that way. <laughs> I, I, it was a pretty genuine apology. It just wasn't much of an apology. And there's a world of difference between apologizing and repenting. I, I see this in my kids. Sometimes they say, I'm sorry. Just to be done with the conversation. Just to get on with life. 
And there's a world of difference between true biblical repentance and mere apologizing. In making an argument from the lesser to the greater, if as a culture we have forgotten how to apologize, have we forgotten how to repent? Or are we content with saying, sorry God. Do we really examine ourselves? And moreover, when we call people to Christ, are we asking them to tell God that they're sorry? Or is there any expectation that they actually turn from their sin to follow Christ? We continue this morning in our story of the inappropriately named prodigal son. We've had the opportunity over the last uh, two weeks to talk about how by looking at the different characters in the story, we see some marvelous truths. When we look at the Father and His graciousness... What, what a good God we serve. Last week we talked about two different ways of sinning. There is a religious way to sin. And there's an irreligious way to sin. And self-righteousness is as much an affront to the work of Christ on the cross as flagrant sinning is. Self-righteousness just looks prettier. It wears a coat and tie. It's not drunk in a gutter somewhere, but it's sin. And this morning we have the chance to look at this parable that Jesus told to see what repentance looks like. And so I'll I'll be reading Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32 from the message. The message is not a translation per se, it is a paraphrase. Since we're spending several weeks on this passage, I think it's good to get some different color by reading it from different translations of the Scripture. So here's how the message translates this story. Then Jesus said, There once was a man who had two sons. And the younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what is coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop. But no one would give him any. That finally brought him to his senses. He said, All those farmhands working for my father sit down to three square meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I will go back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against God, and I have sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got up right away and went home to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding. The father ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God and I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, Quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. 
Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get the grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to have a feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive. Given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. All this time, the older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. And calling over one of the houseboys, he asked, What in the world is going on? He told him, Your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecue beef, because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief. But have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? But then this son of yours, who has thrown away your money on whores, shows up and you go all out with a feast? His father said, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time, and everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time, and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. We had the opportunity last week to talk about how both boys in this story are lost, but only one comes to the realization of that. Well, this morning, as we look at this story, we see that the younger son is indeed the snapshot of repentance. But the truth is that both boys teach us something important about what repentance is and what it is not. So in your bulletin, you'll see an outline with some blanks to fill in. Uh, Six simple points, four that we learn from the younger son, Two that we learn from the older son. And I start with this. The word repentance is actually a military term. I know that we have many veterans, folks who have uh, served God and country. And you know what an about face is. You're marching this way, and then the commander says, about face, and you do a complete turnaround, and you march in the other direction. When the Bible talks about repentance... The Bible's testimony about mankind is that in a way that is mysterious to us, we all rebel against God and gladly, consciously choose sin. We might not think that it's sin because everybody else is doing it. So we come up with all kinds of excuses. But the natural default position for all humanity is to follow after the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. But when God, with his quickening voice, calls us to himself, we don't go, we're glad to leave behind the sin that entraps us and to follow the Savior who frees us. We do an about face. So here are some ways that This parable teaches us about repentance. First, from the younger son. 
The first point is this, that true repentance is personal. True repentance is personal. Repentance cannot be a stage that you pass through or a hoop that you jump through. It cannot be a formality. Putting on a show without it truly being an expression of who you are is not repentance. In this story, if the father could have repented for the younger son, do you think he would, he would have done that? When you have somebody you care for that is making bad decisions, don't you wish kind of vicariously you could repent for them? One of the things I'm always conscious of, I've got four kids. And uh, <clears throat> they like to run. And tell them, when we get to church, don't run. There are young people here, but there are old people here. We don't want that to happen. I, I see them run after I tell them not to run. And what do I do? I apologize to that person who they cut off for them. They don't even know that they cut somebody off because they're half a mile away already. And I apologize for my kids. Can you do that? No. Repentance has to be personal. If the father would have repented for the son, he would have short-circuited the whole learning experience for the young man. It says specifically in the passage that the the younger son wanted the money. He went off and was living the life of his dreams, doing what he wanted to away from his father's rules. And it didn't turn out to be as splendid as he thought thought it would be. And it says that he came to his senses. It was personal. He started to realize this investment he was making was not going to pay off. And he went, you know what? I told my old man off. And people who work for him are better off than I am in my freedom. And this younger son came to understand that this cannot be a detached decision. It had to be something that was personal. The father in this story gave the young man enough line to run out and go. And eventually, he came to the end of himself. He came to some critical self-reflection. This is what Jesus means when he says that at some point, in some way, people who follow him have to die to self. The greatest opponent in your life is, is not some statue that you will bow down to. Not even your wallet, your career, your bank account. It is you. Jesus says you have to die to self. True repentance is personal. Secondly, true repentance is directed towards both God and man. True repentance is directed towards both God and man. You saw what he said. He said, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. As the offender, the younger son had a responsibility to take the initiative to make things right. 
He'd come to his senses, and he went, oh my goodness, I, I have put myself in this situation. I have basically told my father he is dead. How do I, how do I fix this? And he took the initiative to repent to his father. But he didn't just repent to his father. He said, I have sinned against God and against you. Now, this will sound a little familiar. Psalm 51 is David's psalm of repentance after his terrible sin with Bathsheba. That one bad decision led to several bad decisions. Not only was it adultery, but it was lying, it was murder, it was all these things to cover up. Sin is cumulative. Once it gets its hook in you, it will take you farther than you ever intend to go. And so David has sinned against Uriah. He has sinned against Bathsheba. As the leader of the country, he has sinned against his country. But in Psalm 51, what does David say? Against you and you only have I sinned. Now we're supposed to trust the word of God, aren't we? Don't you scratch your head and go, wait a second, David. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against all the faithful worshipers that hold you up as a role model. What do you mean you have only sinned against God? Are you discounting the broken lives that you have left in your wake? No, he's not. Because when we sin against God, we sin against others. And by saying that I have sinned against God and God only, we are fully recognizing that God wants us, He designed us to be in harmonious relationships with each other. And if they're not, it's not just because you have marital problems. It's not just because you have a struggle with your employer. It's because if there is a problem this way on the horizontal level, there is a problem this way on the vertical level and vice versa. It is just the way that it works. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus actually gives us an illustration. He says, if you are on your way to the altar to offer your sacrifice, and on the way, you remember that somebody has something against you, what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to enjoy the worship service? He says, don't go to worship. Leave your offering and go and be restored. If we acknowledge that true repentance is both towards God and man... It requires action on our part. It requires us to acknowledge it. And the sun doesn't kind of over in a corner, secretly and quietly repent. He acknowledges, I need to repent to God, and I need to repent to my Father. There is something that is right. We live in such a privatized, insulated world that we don't want anybody in our business, even brothers and sisters in Christ. There is something right about public confession, public repentance. Now, here's, here's the truth. How many of you have something that you need to repent of this week? Don't raise your hand. It's a little bit of a trick question. Every single one of us, and, and I would be the first one, for some reason in our church service, when we have our invitation, we think that's only for people who have never ever repented before and need to take the initial step of repentance. Friends, when we have our invitation, 
when we have our prayer of confession, that's a chance for us to do business with God and to say, I'm tired of living my way. I'm glad to get this burden off and live God's way. Repentance is directed to God and man. Number three, the truly repentant do not procrastinate. Did you notice what it said after the son had come to his senses? It says he got up immediately. Immediately. And he went. When you know that you have something to repent of, why would you wait? The old statement that time heals all wounds is a lie. If you offend somebody here today and a couple days go by and you don't make things right, there might not be outer hostility, might not be obvious, but what happens? That person you offended, they might not be as friendly to you. They might avoid you a little bit. They might not say anything bad about you. They might not gossip, but they might go, hmm, I thought he was different than that. So if he sits on this side of the church, see, y'all are Baptist. Y'all have assigned seats. So if y'all start moving, I'm wondering, all right, who sat over in that area that offended him? We just do that. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, Paul says, Be angry, yet do not sin, and do not let the sun set on your anger. That's, that's great advice for couples. You ever gone to bed angry? If this is your bed, he sleeps like right here. She sleeps like right here, and you could land a 747 between them. Man, that's a terrible feeling. Not, not that I would know. There's a reason why the Bible says to keep short accounts. Because the love and harmony and unity that we're supposed to have as the people of God admits no degree of separation. And what is true in marriage is true in the family of God. So today, if you have offended someone, don't let time heal the wound. It doesn't do it. Let the word of God heal the wound. And go to the person and repent. If you have never repented to God, you have had a private dealing in your closet. Come this morning at our invitation and say publicly, I'm on God's team. And I'm not embarrassed to identify with Him or His church, this congregation. I'm on board. I'm on board. The truly Repentant, do not procrastinate. One of the problems that we have is there's a temptation for us to overlook the need for continual, ongoing, everyday repentance. Many times we think of repentance as what you have to do to get on God's team. We don't think of it as what you do as a member of God's team. I mean, the gospel is not just a destination. It is also a pathway. You remember Jesus said, stay on the narrow path. He didn't say, hey, I zap you once and for all and you're saved. He says, you're saved once and for all. But people who are saved walk in a different way. They repent. And my concern is that 
Not that we want to make enemies of friends, but we, we focus so much on one-time initial repentance that we don't focus on our need for continual, ongoing repentance. And to, to delay repenting is not wise. Just like cholesterol can harden your arteries, sin can harden your heart. And if on this day, God is granting to you the grace of repentance, don't assume that it'll be this way in a month. Ah, I don't need to do all that. I'll be okay. And a month from now, you'll convince yourself even more that you don't need to repent. So when God speaks to your heart, work. Number four, the truly repentant do not try to control the outcome. The truly repentant do not try to control the outcome. Uh, A couple things here that I think are just very practical. When you are repenting to God, but especially to other people, you have to acknowledge the damage that you have done to others. You need to be prepared, perhaps for some tears. You need to be prepared, perhaps for some anger. You need to be prepared, perhaps for some coolness. Thank you for acknowledging what you've done. I won't go out for coffee with you tomorrow, but we're on the pathway to making things right. You, you don't. Con- you, hey, I'm asking for your forgiveness. You're not allowed to be mad at me now. Don't do that. You just need to fess up for what you can do. And here, it's beautiful. The son had this whole prepared speech. The father doesn't even let him finish it. Because the father senses that the repentance is genuine, and so the welcome home is given. What does the son do? He doesn't protest. No, no, no. Don't give me the ring, dad. I'm, I'm not worthy to be... He doesn't, he doesn't protest. He accepts the outcome, and he simply receives it. Now, to those of you who need to offer repentance, here's a couple things. The truly repentant accept the consequences. Uh, Right there in your blank. They accept the consequences. They don't erase the effects of sin. Uh, Just like we talked about a non-apology apology, apology, don't offer a non-repentant repentance. Here's what we do with our kids. We try as much as possible to get rid of the I'm sorry language. We want the, will you forgive me because I did this, and in the future I should do this. It requires a little more thinking. Okay, why are you sorry? Well, I'm sorry because... I kicked you in the face. <laughs> I'm sorry because I broke your favorite toy. In the future, maybe I need to ask you before I play with your toy. I need to get your permission. That's your toy. You know, I need to be gentle when I play with you, when I wrestle with you. To get them thinking about it. Because we don't want them apologizing just, I'm, I'm sorry. You want them to know what they're apologizing for. When you, when you repent, watch your words and your tone. Your words and your tone can invalidate what you think you're trying to do. (laughs) Does anyone anyone remember the game, sorry? I used to hate playing that with my grandma. Because in the game of sorry, your whole goal is to like whammy the other players. And so the name of the game is sorry. So every time my grandma would get me, she'd go, sorry. I'm like, no, you're not. You got 50 years on me, Grandma. You're supposed to let me win a few. Sorry. You see it. 
Your words and your tone matter. When you repent, uh, let me say this specifically to our, our younger folks, okay? Um, wherever you guys find yourself. Don't, don't apologize. I'm not talking to you, Larry. Um, <laughs> when you repent, when you apologize, do not do it via Facebook, Twitter, or text message. Don't do it. It is too important to be handled tritely, okay? When you have something that is that important to say, you know what you need to do? And listen, big kids, you need to know this too. You need to do it face-to-face. And you know what? It is humiliating. That's part of the process. To humble yourself before someone and say, I don't know what I was thinking, but I know that I've hurt you. And I need to ask for your forgiveness. And that's the way relationships get restored. There's a difference between ego repentance and biblical repentance. And I hate to use my kids as illustrations, but I'm not allowed to use your kids. I'd get in trouble. We just had Easter, so there's tons of chocolate. I mean, there's chocolate all over the place. And when we come to church, Craig Trovenger doesn't help us at all. Uh, He gives us more candy. And so... uh, uh, They're not allowed to get into their candy without permission. And uh, I, I, uh, we get home from church, and we're changing and getting ready for lunch. And uh, one of my unnamed children has a little chocolate. Did you eat the chocolate? Did you eat the chocolate? No, sir. Sometimes respectfulness gets you off the hook. One more time, in English, just to make sure we're communicating. Did, did you unwrap some chocolate, put it in your mouth, chew it up, and swallow it? It's on your face! I can see it! The devil made me do it, Daddy! It was my sin! What are they trying to do? Get off the hook. Blame someone. I like jelly beans. Another kid, another story. We had some jelly beans out, or had a bag of jelly beans, and they were, they were, they were my jelly beans. <laughs> and they, they disappeared. All right, who ate my jelly beans? Nobody said anything, and uh, I kind of went about doing whatever I was doing. About 20 minutes later, Daddy, I ate your jelly beans. The devil made me do it. No, I didn't do it. And then when you catch him, oh, it wasn't me, it was my sin, it was my, the devil. Ego repentance, trying to preserve yourself. Biblical repentance, allowing the spirit to convict and just allowing it to happen. And so, Accept the consequences. Don't erase the effects of sin. To those of you who are being repented too, those of you who are granting forgiveness do not need to have higher standards than God. That was the older son's problem. He said, all right, if you're really repentant, let me rub your nose in it for a little while. We'll see. What do you notice about the the older son? In his rebuke of his father, he's kind of saying, Dad, you don't care. You don't care that your son did what he did. Did the father care? How do we know that the father cared? 
Because he was on the lookout for when his son would return. And for the older son's sake, what are you doing? Accepting him back. The father cared. It's just for the older son, all of his obedience was a joyless duty. He was trying to manipulate getting all his dad's stuff by being good. And he kept the letter of the law, even if it made him miserable. And he was miffed that his older brother was offered free grace. Make him keep the law, and then we'll restore him after six months of good behavior. That's not grace. That's parole. Learning how to have higher standards than God has always been an issue for the church. Very early on, when missionary advance was happening, in the very beginning stages of the church, there was a council that was held about whether Gentiles needed to become Jews before they could become Christians. What do we mean they're freely forgiven and they don't have to keep all these dietary laws? And they, they don't, they're, they're allowed to walk more than 300 paces on the Sabbath. If we've had to shoulder this burden, you do too. That's not grace. And we see two other lessons that we learn from the older son that are important for us to learn. Number five, we see that self-preservation is incompatible with repentance. It's incompatible. That's not, self-preservation is not repentance. It is defensiveness. And and the older brother tries several things. He tries a diversion. Look how good I have been all this time, Dad. I've been good. You need to recognize that. Instead of honestly dealing with his legalistic attitude. He tries to distract. Do you know by including him back in the family that you're cutting into my inheritance? That's the problem here. Instead of owning, he tries to downplay his own badness, because he, he's got his younger brother as a foil to say he's worse than I am. Self-preservation. And the truth is, self-preservation is kind of like a muscle in our body, and we always keep it tight. Somebody says something bad about you? No, I'm, I'm ready to defend myself. And as Christians, when we're controlled by the Spirit, we can let that muscle relax a little bit, can't we? My sin doesn't define me anymore. Christ defines me. I still screw up. Big time sometimes. I don't need to defend myself. Number six, our final point, is that repentance must be deeper. Repentance must be deeper than the list approach. It must be deeper than the list approach. And here's two points that I say to clarify that. We have to repent not only for our bad deeds, but for our bad motives for our good deeds. You ever done something good to try to manipulate someone? You ever tried to work your boss over? Oh yeah, I'm the best employee. Give me that promotion that's coming up. Recognize me. It is very possible for good things be done bad it happens it's very easy to keep the rules that we have leverage over someone you owe me i've been very good and the odd thing is in this story is that as the story ends the older son is lost outside of the party and the problem for him was his pride in his good deeds it ruined his 
obedience. Here, the son who had violated nothing on his list was more alienated from the family than the son who broke all the rules. And it's because he only wanted to repent of deeds. And so, I I didn't do anything wrong. He didn't want to repent of attitudes. Well, you know, I, I don't drink or smoke or cuss or chew or run around with girls who do. So I'm better than everybody else. Not exactly. Not exactly. It is a sin to do the wrong thing. It is wicked to fail to do right, but it is perverse to do the right things for selfish reasons. We have to repent of the reasons we ever did anything right in the first place. If the reason we did it was not for the glory of God. We've got to repent of our motivations for doing good things if it was for selfish reasons. And the last sub-point is this. We have to repent not only for what you do. You have to repent for who you are. You have to repent for who you are. That's strong language. Don't repent only of the fruits. Repent of the roots. Why did you sin? Why did you sin? You did sin because you are a sinner. Don't just repent of the fruit without dealing with the root. It's not just what we've done, but who we are. We sin because we are sinners. And the problem is not our individual acts. It's our heart that is motivated towards sin. Repentance is a big deal. Because if God's people get this wrong, other people have no model of what to follow. We mentioned Psalm 51 here just a minute ago. uh, David's confession of sin. There's a beautiful song... uh, that basically is Psalm 51 put to music. And uh, Marcy and one of her students from school are going to come and sing that for us. And this is not, it's not a performance, it's not a show. It is part of our learning this morning. My question for you is, as we talk about repentance, you can go through the cheap car wash, or you can get all the cracks and crevices washed out and get it detailed. What kind of repentance do you do? Do you do the cheap shine? Do you do the deep shine? So as they sing, the words will be on the screen. I invite you to sing, not with your mouth, but with your hearts, as you listen to the message of biblical repentance that is in this song. God be merciful to me On thy grace I rest my plea Plenteous in compassion thou Blot out my transgressions now 
Wash me, make me pure within. Cleanse, oh, cleanse me from my sin. My transgressions I confess. Grief and guilt my soul oppress. I have sinned against thy grace. And provoked thee to thy face. I confess thy judgment just. Speechless I thy mercy trust. I am evil born in sin. Thou desirest truth within. Thou alone, my Savior, art. Teach thy wisdom to my heart. Make me pure, thy grace bestow. Wash me whiter than the snow. Just let my contrite heart rejoice and in gladness hear thy voice from my sins, oh, hide thy face, blot them out in boundless grace. Gracious God, my. Spirit right and true, cast me not away from thee. Let thy spirit dwell in me. Thy salvation's joy impart, steadfast make my willing heart. Turn, O God, to Thee, Savior, all my guilt remove, and my tongue shall sing Thy love. Touch my silent lips, O Lord, and my mouth shall praise the core. Touch my silent lips, O Lord, and my mouth shall praise a chord. There's a tremendously strange contradiction in the Christian life. The more we sing, and talk about our sin, 
the greater the cross becomes in our life. The more we can glory in the work that Christ has done, restoring sinners to himself. The song concludes by letting me be an example that my repentance is an example to lost sinners. Church, I ask you, if your repentance is the model, what are lost sinners learning from you? There is a joy and a life that only comes from knowing true biblical repentance. And I pray this morning that if you feel that there are things that you need to repent to God, that you'll come this morning and allow our church to pray for you. That if there are relationships, that there are areas that you need to repent, we don't call you forward to make fun of you. Because the truth is, every single one of us need to be right down here at the altar too. And my prayer as we enter into this time of invitation is whether you come or whether you stay in your seats, that you will repent. Because it is good for you. It is glorifying to God. Jesus himself says, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who have no need of repentance.